Race matters. 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 I'd like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Wurundjeri land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Wurundjeri custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands long after us. It's a meeting place for sharing knowledge, stories, and song, and we are privileged to be part of that storytelling today and every day at Amplify Bookstore. We are broadcasting out of Redfern, the birthplace of black theatre in this country and a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. I pay my respects to Gadigal and Wurundjeri elders past and present. We honour this in all the work we do and carry this into our conversation today. You're listening to a book club with Amplify Bookstore on Race Matters. If this is your first time listening to our book club on Race Matters, this is a space where we chat about some of the amazing books by people of colour and discuss why it's so important for us to read widely. I'm Teo Tsingxuan. And I'm Marina Sano, and we're the co-founders of Amplify Bookstore, an online bookstore dedicated to books written by Black, Indigenous and people of colour. What you might not know about us is that we also crossed paths way before we started our online bookstore. Shuan and I met back in our undergrad before coincidentally going on to study our masters in publishing together, because it turned out we'd both been bookworms since day one. Bing bang boom, we kept chatting about the ways that we were, by which I mean the ways that we were not, seeing our stories represented in the books that we were reading and hearing about. We wanted a bookstore that highlights and amplifies BIPOC voices. And so with the combination of lockdown delirium, because we did start this in 2020, and the confidence that only comes with being 21, we launched Amplify Bookstore. Both grew up in Singapore with my family being expats slash immigrants and Chuen's being Singaporean. And we immediately bonded over our shared, although drastically different experiences of growing up in that tiny country. And one of the things that we've come back to a lot is how we've never really read a book that was set in Singapore or even really broadly the Southeast Asian region. So in a lot of ways, our friendship and where we came from has shaped how we run Amplify and also the book that we've chosen to talk about today. Now You See Us by Bali Jaswal sheds light on the lives of domestic workers in Singapore. It follows three Filipino domestic workers, or maids as we call them, as they navigate their lives as new or seasoned domestic workers. The plot thickens as one of their friends get accused of murder and the rest of them have to try and figure out if she did it or not. It's mystery with a dash of sharp cultural commentary, and it's definitely one to pick up, even if you're not someone who normally reads contemporaries like me. So one of the things that we really liked about this book was the coziness of reading something that's set in a place that you have an emotional attachment to. Because as people who grew up outside of basically the US or Britain, it's very uncommon to actually find something that's set in a place that's properly familiar to you. Um, like so many of us have learned sort of broadly how, what to expect culturally 
um, from the US and Britain, basically, and other places in the Western world that we get so few stories out of places like Singapore. Yeah, I think there was an excitement when Crazy Rich Asians was a, became a huge thing and the movie came out and it was filmed in Singapore and it was this big cultural moment when Singapore was finally on the map. And I think that I was maybe like 18, 20 when that came out. And that was huge because I watched Crazy Rich Asians and I was like, they can't possibly go to all of these hawker stores in one night because they are in like three different locations in the country. This is so unrealistic. But at the same time, I was like, is this what New Yorkers feel like? when they watch a show or a movie that's meant to be set in New York, but it's filmed in Toronto. That feeling came with reading the book. It was very much like a secret language that only people who lived in Singapore or grew up in Singapore could know, or even people who had maids, because I wasn't someone, my family didn't have maids growing up, but my friends definitely did, and I definitely saw a lot of the ways that they treated the maids. Some were like, we're treating them like family, but obviously there's a boundary there that you can't cross. And some of them genuinely just treated them like a servant. And so for those of you who don't know, a domestic worker or a maid is someone who lives in your house and basically helps you like cook meals, clean the house and keep the whole house functional. In a lot of Singaporean families, they're dual income. And so someone needs to take care of the kids and keep the house clean and cook dinner. Oftentimes, that role is like the grandparents' role, but there are many occasions and it's very, very common when that role is the maid's role. And basically, there is a whole system built that relies on the labor of these women, mostly Filipino or Indonesian, where they come to Singapore to support their families and they send money back and they earn absolutely no money. Like we're talking maybe a grand a month, probably a few hundred. And so room and board and food is normally covered um, there are laws that state that they can only that they should have one day off, but there are no labor laws that have like minimum wage or workers' protection. And so a lot of them end up being exploited and treated really badly. It's been more interesting to hear people's reactions to it here telling them about some of the experiences that I had as a kid because um especially notably growing up in an expat community, there's a lot of people who came from Australia mostly with less money than they ended up having when they were in Singapore. And so the absolute entitlement of some of the parents at my school when they suddenly, A, had a lot of money and B, had someone in their employ who just lived at their house and did everything for them was horrifying. Yeah, and I think... Because the domestic worker situation is quite unique to Singapore um, and also in the book, someone one of the characters has a sister who went to Dubai instead. Um, it's very unique to these areas where there's a lot of expats and where, you know, you're kind of as a country growing very quickly. Reading a book like Now You See Us as someone who doesn't know what that is, I feel like that is 
a really interesting concept and a context to be dropped into. But also it kind of widens your worldview, you know? I don't think many people know that domestic worker situations exist. And in the book, what I really enjoyed was the breadth of the experiences the women had as domestic workers. So you had one that had a really good employer who kind of gave her a lot of freedom and treated her with a lot of respect, although that that later on came with some issues. But you also had another whose employer refused to give her, you know, her day off, who gave her a 7 p.m. curfew. And it really shows um, the many different contexts in which domestic workers could find themselves in. And it's very much like a lottery system. You know, you don't know what kind of family you're going into. You just kind of have to do it because you've you are now the sole breadwinner of your family you need to work to pay for schools to pay the bills back home and everything relies on you that was another thing that I liked about the book is that it gave a lot of sort of foregrounding to the actual employment process and how you like get to how the women who are working as helpers got to be there and like what it looked like just starting fresh and the employment conditions and sort of the expectations and the way that people are advertised as just products. Um, And it was something I was sort of vaguely aware of, like growing up around it. But there's very basic facts in this book that I had just, just never thought about or been made aware of. And that was so horrifying. I grew up in that country with these women around me with families with domestic workers and I was like this is bad and we've never had these conversations in Singapore like conversations around domestic workers and their rights only came up very recently during COVID because we had an issue issue in quotation marks with domestic workers being treated so poorly that COVID was just raging through their dormitories that it sparked the conversation around how we treat the people who are the backbone of our society. The book does a really good job of raising your attention and centering it onto a group of people whose sort of situations and lives that you don't necessarily think about too specifically a lot of the time if you do at all, which is also then an interesting time to consider that The author is also not a Filipino woman or a domestic helper. Um, She also grew up as an expat sort of all over the place. But this book is a really good example of actually writing outside of your own specific cultural background with a lot of respect. And you kind of get that throughout the book. You can really tell that she treats these people that she's writing about with a lot of care. And there's a lot of frankness to the way she's written them. There's a lot of truth in what she's written. And it's, you know, that these are truths that she can only get from speaking to domestic workers and having those conversations with them. And it's these conversations that she sort of mentions at the end of the book um, that really help put everything that she's written into context that I really particularly enjoyed and I really appreciated. The book is like, it's it's fiction. It's a murder mystery at the end of the day. It takes a lot of roots and like character development to get there, but it is ultimately 
a murder mystery. It's so significantly centered on just these voices that you never hear. And it makes the murder mystery honestly even more intriguing as well because there's this whole almost like underworld. It's not criminal, but just underworld of lives and networks and ways of being that are completely invisible to everyone else, including the people who are trying to formally investigate the mystery in the book. And as someone who doesn't usually like a lot of genre fiction, I mostly, me personally, I mostly just want to read basically about characters and people's lives and what they're going through. This hit every note for me with that, while having a plot that kept it moving along and helped to keep the three different women that you're following primarily connected. And Schwen, on the other hand, usually needs a lot of plot. And I still convinced her to read it. <laughs> I was going to read it because it was set in Singapore anyways. And I will famously pick up a book, even if it's outside my genre, because it's set in Singapore. And because these stories are not things that I come across often, there are a few books that we will share between us. And this is one of them. And I think that that shows how special it is. And the way that the book opens it really grabs you with this a news article that's like domestic worker charged for murder under investigation that really like draws you in and then brings you into these lives and Bali does a really good job of like really drawing you into these lives of these domestic workers and this is all in complete juxtaposition to the houses that the women are living in because they live in really wealthy houses and they're also sort of wrapped up in, she calls them throughout the book, she calls them her mams, the mams, the um, women who are employing them and like bossing them around all day. And the mams are like exorbitantly wealthy and they live in these bougie houses in nice parts of town where Shwen and I were leaving notes for each other on the book like, oh my God, this is where the nice ones are. This is Mansion City. And, like, you see that, and then they, the helpers get just shoved in the sh- tiniest room um, in their houses while and helping them cook and make, like, ten-course meals and prepare for this huge, like, tens of thousands of dollars of wedding preparation. And the helpers are lucky to get a day off a week. And they just have to live around that and help and be the support for making that whole life happen. And it's just so jarring. I think if you haven't lived in Singapore and you haven't had experiences with or with friends who have domestic workers, this story might seem a bit removed or But as someone who grew up in Singapore and as people who have experiences with domestic workers and have seen the way that they're treated and have seen the Straits Times headlines about them, this book is incredibly realistic. It's realistic in the complexity of the characters because the story is mostly told in third person, but you get a lot of the inner workings of the characters themselves. It's realistic in the ways that the women are being treated. You know, it might sound crazy that they sleep in 
tiny cubicles that's where they live you know they oftentimes in Singapore houses have a storage room and they these rooms are advertised as storage rooms or maid rooms and you can put that into perspective what in a regular household would be a pantry in Singapore is a room for your maid And I think what Bali does really well is that she really examines and unpacks the lives of these women who are part of a complex and often exploitative global system that devalues women and their labor and their responsibilities that come with it. These are maids that are virtually invisible in Singaporean society, but they are the people that keep it going. They are the reason why kids get picked up from school, why your kids are fed, why your house is clean, and why women have the opportunity to work. It is the real lives of a lot of women in Singapore, in Dubai, who are often the sole breadwinner of their families. They send money home back to the Philippines, to their families, to pay for school fees, to pay their parents' rent, to make sure that you know, not just their immediate family, but their extended family have food on the plate and a roof over their head. They carry immense weight on their shoulders, but they're not respected or protected in the systems that rely on them. It probably sounds like satire to you at this point, if you haven't lived in Singapore or somewhere else with a similar helper situation, but it's not, <laughs> which is really grim. But the book is actually also really funny because it holds no bars with just eat the rich, they are terrible, what is going on madness. And so a lot of the topics we've talked about today have been, you know, very harrowing and a bit hard to stomach, but it still has a really strong narrative of female friendship and support and like finding your community and just laughing at the absolute ridiculousness of some of these wealthy, obscenely wealthy people. But that's why this book's so great, because as Bali says, she wrote this novel for to create more dignity, compassion and recognition of women like the main characters in the book. And they, their perspectives are how the story is told and it actually centers them and it gives them so much agency and just spirit and like they are such full rounded characters as people who moved away from home at 16 and 18 respectively marina and i have sort of been grappling with the, the fact that we're sort of losing bits of our culture and finding different ways however small to connect back to the place that we call home and also the things that differentiate us for us a lot of the times that's eating the food that we have grown up with the food that our mom makes every day um, reading stories from the place that we are familiar with you know marina reads a lot of mixed characters and i tend to try to find stories set in Singapore or Southeast Asia. Xuan and I often find ourselves reaching for cultural connection through stories and, more tangibly, food, which has turned out to be a great cure to homesickness. And that leads us into our next conversation on Book Club today, which was with Damien Coulthard. He's a regenerative farmer, cultural educator and author. 
Damien Coulthard is an Anyamanta man of the Flinders Ranges. He lives off the grid in the Clare Valley and is co-founder of Wandu, a brand on a mission to regenerate culture, community, tradition, health, seas and soils by making Australian native produce available and raising awareness to regenerate culture. Damien has authored two titles, Wandu Mai and First Nations Food Companion, and is joining us for Book Club on Race Matters. Damien, thank you so much for being here today. We are so excited to speak to you. First Nations Food Companion is your most recent title, a follow-up to your book, Wandu Mai. Take us back to the beginning. How did you start your connection to your ancestral food practice? I guess for me, like most other um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, it always starts with family, and family is your connection to country and place. And as mentioned, um, Flinders Ranges, up last, a place called Lee Creek, um, which is in the state of South Australia. My family had lived um, in a community called Nepabana for a long period of time, and Nepamata transfers to Frosty Valley. So during my school holidays as a young fellow, I used to spend a lot of time up there with my grandparents and, and family moving across country. And I guess for me, um, country is language and is food and is your identity. And sadly for a lot of Aboriginal people, living in Australia no longer live on their ancestral lands. And there's there's many, many different reasons for that, but I'm fortunate to spend a lot of time on my country. And that's where my food experience has really started. And it starts with love um, for your grandparents and, and your family with your aunties and uncles. And for me, it was going out in the country and harvesting a particular special fruit, and that was the Kwangdong Uti in the other Makna language. And um, just spending time with my grandmother, um, it was an extremely knowledgeable lady, but someone who also loved a laugh and a joke and shared um, stories about my father and my aunties and uncles and just harvesting that fruit and then sitting in a, in a, in a kitchen and probably being more of a pest, if I'm honest, making a mess and eating the pongdongs while she made, probably not knowing the importance of it when I was a young fella, but now when reflecting on those memories, um, it is particularly important. So, and particularly my young boys now, Mally and Nara, it's about creating experience for them, which would ingrain a memory code. So they're always going to think back to those particularly special moments and then help them want to know more, inspire them to want to know more. So more recent times, we, we reconnected with country and that was over over Easter, my grandparents are no longer with us. So reconnecting countries that are a memory um, and a reminder of them whilst visiting. And whilst visiting, it kind of felt like whilst we were travelling and whilst we were eating in that creek bed that they, they were with us. And if I think of food systems, you see food everywhere. We're out harvesting um, some timber to, to have a um, have a fire and to cook up some lunch. And whilst there, my aunt Michelle was talking to me around the native lemongrass and then also seeing, you know, a native mint growing in that creek bed. And when you're looking at those plants, these are plants that our people have harvested and worked with for, you know, over many family generations. But then to hear a story about how that was used, like talking about a ground oven, you know, a narrow ground oven that, um, you know, heating up rocks, placing that in the ground, layering it with different native herbs like native lemongrass, like the mint, placing um, the meat on top of that, putting a hot rock over the top and then pouring water on it. Like we think, you know, chefs are amazing with, with their new innovative practices, but how people have been doing this for thousands of years. 
And it's important to acknowledge not all this information is accessible and it's not until you get the chance to go out and visit and connect with the people who know the information that you start to learn um, the stories of that particular country and that particular nation and perhaps why food systems are so important to them and why we should all reconnect with that. You know, combine them with other First Nations food systems as well because we have such beautiful flavours, such rich cultures to share and it's a way of collaborating and um, building positive working and sustainable relationships. By just observing the country and taking the time over the last five and a half years, you can see the activity of the different animals um, and the number of spiders as well. I believe um, huntsmen's are a really important part of the biodiversity and um, we're great friends with. The most important thing about being a regenerative farmer is just observation and then learning from others who are already, already doing it. So we've got 65 acres of trees here and... I think for Beck and I, it's about inviting people into the, to our space and learning from them. And then also for us to work in the nudgery or have knowledge of the land. So the most important thing is, you know, like I said, I live off country. I'm an um person, Northern Flinders Rangers. Yes, we do border with them, but I'm moving off country. So I need to use our platform through Wandu to help elevate their voice, create access to country and land, because not everyone has access to country and land, help them share their story, which is so special to the country and so important to revitalise and getting it back to its natural state. So I think um, for us, it's about inviting people to the era, your experts and leaders in the field, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people, but it has to be a partnership and a sustainable partnership at that. You describe yourself as living off-grid in the Clare Valley. How has your work as a regenerative farmer led to reclaiming and reconnecting to culture? Although I have my um, so own interests in culture, which is the Adamant culture, it's important to celebrate everyone's cultural heritage. Aboriginal Australia has many, many different nations, many different stories um, around land management and food systems and self-governance. So why not celebrate everyone's um, cultural heritage? And food is a fantastic way to do that um, through Wandu. Particularly in our book, we celebrate 60 different natives, which are which are the most accessible natives. You know, we try to celebrate that through having a witch name for that particular plant. We have a description of that plant, where to buy it, um, and how to use it. Now, we're not experts in the field. It is a living document, and we just want to act, act in a culturally responsive way, and we're all, always open to feedback, and we just want to work with and collaborate with people that are doing amazing things and doing amazing things with the intention to build strong working relationships and to strengthen communities. I think that's really what we need to get to is move away from from self and just come back to community, come back to looking after the beautiful countries in which we call Australia as a collective, but then also working with individual nations um, celebrate what they've got there. Now, there's many different native plants. Some plants are particularly culturally um, significant to one but might, may not be to the other. So another thing to remember is that, and this is something that my auntie said to me, um, when we were looking at the native lemongrass, how all people to harvest that and they used to use it for medicine and some of those processes have been lost. Native lemongrass is a medicinal plant. Um, there's heaps of um, information around it's nature's paracetamol. So if we're going to pair that back, how do we treat our um, illnesses at the moment? 
we go to a GP, then we end up at a pharma, like a pharmacist, a chemist, we buy the medicine. So we wouldn't be making up our own concoctions. So it's really important that we kind of reconnect with traditional owners and experts in the field, see what we're actually allowed to harvest first, how to use it in the most respectful way. Um, so we're not abusing it and yeah, we're just acting in a culturally responsive and respectful way. Um, we've just recently planted seven strawberry gums and it's in a small roundabout in our driveway. It's got its own little microclimate. But what that's also created for us by having those range of natives around our plant is once again, having those little experiences with our little son, Mally. Um, we've got a Geraldton wax tree, um, you know, an East Myrtle, Cinnamon Myrtle growing around the, around the place and just him picking it, um, touching that leaf, smelling his fingers, and then describing that. So he's only three years of age. So we're not putting any barriers on his learning. And he shares that, um, particularly he's at the gums. With us, with Wandu, we sell a range of natives. So he has access to that. He takes it to daycare. He shares it. If he shares the Kwangdong, he's able to say he's an Adamantla person. He says he's a Yura, he's a Yakti, which is a kid. So this is a three-year-old sharing with his friends who are also excited about those flavors. So sometimes I really think it's us as parents or um, us as us and adults that put barriers on our, on our on young children's minds. So let's just create experiences for them. With what you're saying and the importance of different ingredients, um, we can bring it back to your cookbooks. And so as we might have said before, Wandu Mai was a book that we sought out to include in Amplify at the initial launch um, because it was a book that we didn't see like the content of the book wasn't something we could we saw anywhere else so it was an important one for us to have um and we were also separately very sorry to hear that it had been rejected four times before being picked up by Hachette on that note we wanted to ask what is your advice to other diverse food writers out there who are looking to get their work published how do we how do we want to create change how do you want people to be change agents I think it's no longer okay to say that you've got a friend of colour and those friends can be from different backgrounds and think that's okay to not have a voice because that's not okay. No, you've got to pick your moments. But, you know, this book, this book First Nations Food Companion, is about celebrating the diverse Aboriginal nations across Australia, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, and showcasing what beautiful culture we have. Now, if it's someone's first experience through tasting that native ingredient and they love the flavour, hopefully they look out the language name, find out where the location of that is, and then think next time they're travelling across country on a family holiday, hopefully they engage in another food experience, but an authentic one with, you know, an expert leader from that area, and they start to learn more about that cultural heritage of the space because it's through that experience they'll fall in love with what Aboriginal culture has always been and still is. And that's what's really important about this book. Um, and that's what I believe other people should be doing in their work practice. Like everything that we do through Wanda is not just our business at the moment. Um, so what do I at the moment? I'm an educator. I've been a school teacher for 15 plus years. And I was inspired by um, a non-Aboriginal teacher who showed me love, who showed me care and showed me support. And although I had, I've got strong leaders and they're all female leaders, 
mostly who have given me the opportunity to transition through different spaces, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal. And I just wanted to be someone who could work in that space. For me, I now work at a school in Clare. Um, those have been to Clare. It is a very white community. I'm working with students who are from privileged backgrounds and I have two young children. I want to teach them about Aboriginal, different forms of cultural expression, the true history of our country. So then when they leave and move into different circles, they become doctors, they become architects, they start to influence those circles. When they move through the community and they hear someone making a comment, whether it's their, their, their grandmother or their auntie or their uncle, they're able to challenge them with, with the right information through experiences that they have. So Wandu is just one small thing, one small part of the puzzle of um, what my family do, Beck and I, and my family being the other mountain community as well. The process of decolonizing goes beyond reading. So incorporating bush food into our everyday meals is another great entry point into decolonizing how we think by exploring what we eat. We are coming to the end of our time together. So for our final question, for those listening who are keen on including more bush food into their everyday cooking, how would you suggest they get started? I think the most easiest thing to do is to go out and purchase some from native plants from your local nursery, from the area that you live in. If the plant happens to not make the journey in the first two weeks, go out and try again. I think it's all about experimentation. Um and then falling in love with, with the flavour through, you know, trialling with um, different recipes. Um, Wandu Mai, First Nations Food Companion, are only two resources. I'm sure there are many other resources out there, but once again, it's just all about experimentation. For some, we're not allowed to do that. So going to um, your local nursery and buying that plant and then growing your own vegetables and then enjoying the fusion of the flavours together um, you know, with your children or with your next door neighbours, it's just something so easy that that we can do. But um, just an extension from that, if I can encourage um, all that are listening, when you have the opportunity next, and if there is um, a community event on that is led by First Nations people, um, don't feel uncomfortable um, or question or make reasons why not to go. Go there. Um, experience it, ask questions because I'm sure they'll be more than happy to share um, in their cultural heritage with you. So our communities have, do have strong females and their, their voice is important and it's quite often that their voices are left out and it's the men that get um, a lot of the accolades for it. I know for me um, and particularly with the other mother community, my great-grandmother um, Annie um, Coulthard in partnership with other strong females um, recorded the stories of the Flinders Rangers in a book called Flinders Rangers Dreaming. It was done by Dorothy Tunbridge. And it is that book that we're able to use when we go out on country. It's a learning resource that I can now use with my two beautiful children. It's a, it's a learning resource I can use with my students. And it's through going out and visiting those spots and then me repainting the stories and then sharing it with homes. Um, or other businesses who choose to, to buy a piece of country. So when we buy a form of cultural expression, we are buying a story that is related to country and, and culturally significant to that, that individual. But 
about that community. But where does it all stem from? A lot of it stems from the strong females in that community. And I think it's really important that, that we acknowledge that in the story. That's all for Book Club on Race Matters this week. I'm Marina Sano. And I'm Theo Tsingxuan. And we're the hosts of Book Club and co-founders of Amplify Bookstore. Massive thanks to our guest Damien Coltard for chatting with us about the First Nations Food Companion and his work with Wandu. To find out more about the book and Damien's work at Wandu, you can catch him in conversation at the Sydney Writers' Festival on May 27 as part of two events, Future Food and The Dinner That Changed My Life. Details will be in the show notes. Also, stay tuned on the Race Matters Instagram where we'll be giving away two double passes for the event, The Dinner That Changed My Life, with Damien who will be appearing alongside a heap of other amazing food storytellers. Other than that, if you want to learn more about what Schwen and I do and support an indie bookstore led by women of colour, please come visit us at amplifybookstore.com or just head to the show notes. It is goodbye for now. We'll be back really soon. But until then, read widely. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters.